It's 138 episodes and nine and a bit years since Russia got much attention in the series. And a lot happened in that sprawling space since the 1820s voyages of the Vostok and the Murney under Bellingshausen and Lazareth. This episode is light on the Antarctic as I catch you up on some of the developments that later hold important bearing on Russia engagement with the Southern Ocean and the Southern Continent. Russia became a thing when the first of the Rurik Tsars, Ivan the Terrible, ended Moscow's subservience to Mongol governance in the 16th century. Among the Rurik Tsars, the main impact on the Antarctic story was Peter the Great, who reigned between 1682 and 1725. Peter promoted importing foreign philosophical ideas and technological innovations, seeking to bring his empire up to date with external developments. In his final years, drawing on guidance from the German polymath and diplomat Gottfried Leibniz, Peter established the Russian Academy of Sciences in St. Petersburg, an institute with tremendous bearing on future developments in the ice coffee narrative. A student of that academy, Mikhail Lomasov, urged for government support for an attempt to find the Northeast Passage. Catherine the Great gave imperial sanction in 1764, but the three corvettes sent north failed to find a path linking the Atlantic and Pacific Oceans, a task eventually completed by Finnish-Swede Adolf Nordenweld in 1878. In 1763, Lomasov independently hypothesised a southern continent based on the icebergs mariners encountered south of Tierra del Fuego, but he couldn't bring together an expedition. It was James Cook's voyages that inspired the first Russian foray south. The chairman of the Scientific Committee of the Russian Ministry of Naval Affairs, Logan Golenishev Kutuzov, translated Cook's book, A Voyage Towards the South Pole and Round the World, into Russian, and this did a lot to spur Alexander I to send Bellingshausen and Lazarev south aboard the Vostok and the Murny. Tsar Alexander was part of the Romanov dynasty who took the Russian reins after the rule of the Rurik Tsars petered out in a series of succession crises involving pretenders to the throne and banishments. Bellingshausen's reports, published ten years after the expedition returned, did little to inspire further imperial enthusiasm for Antarctic exploration, and only came to prominence at the end of the 19th century when translated into German. After Bellingshausen's patron Tsar Alexander, the Tsarship fell to a Nicholas two more Alexanders, and landed on Nicholas II in 1894. At its height, the Russian Empire Nicholas II inherited held a sixth of the world's land in its grip, earning it historical bronze in the How Big's Your Empire Olympics, with the Mongols taking silver and the Brits bagging the gold. Nicholas II wanted to modernise Russia, taking on foreign loans by which to purchase the machinery and to rent the expertise necessary to bring a Middle Ages feudal economy kicking and screaming into the 19th century. His drive to purchase French artillery and to train his military forces in the French mode stands as one of the precursors to the First World War, as German military leaders used this development to put the fear of the Russo-French alliance into their simpleton emperor, Kaiser Wilhelm II, and to prime the pump for a war before their own current suite of military hardware 
was technologically outpaced by that of their neighbours and historical enemies. Nicholas II oversaw the end of the Great Game, the century-long pissing contest between Russia and Britain over control of Central Asia, focused on the land we now call Afghanistan. Tsar Nicholas II's Pacific Fleet got trounced by the post-Meiji Restoration Japanese Navy, trained and armed first by Dutch and then by French military schools and shipyards. Nicholas II sent his Baltic Fleet into the Pacific to exact revenge, but they got trounced by the Japanese too. Then the Sino-Japanese War diminished Russian influence over China and Korea. The empire wasn't going well for Nicholas II. Add to all this the Bloody Sunday Massacre, pogroms against the Jewish villages, and that Nicholas II wouldn't share an iota of power with his government underlings, and you've set the scene for an uprising, or several uprisings arising from several directions against an incompetent and arrogant dictator, whose influence and empire are both on the skids. Scott and Amundsen's forays south led to a brief resurgence of Russian presence in Antarctica, when Dmitry Gerov sailed on the Terranova as a dog handler and Anton Olmachenko joined him as a horse wrangler, and Alexander Kuchin sailed aboard the Fram as an oceanographer. But that was the extent of any Russian presence in the South in the century since the visits of the Myrny and Vostok. On the 28th of June 1914, Bosnian Serb nationalist Gavrilo Princep assassinated presumptive heir to the Austro-Hungarian Empire, Franz Ferdinand, and his wife, Sophie, Duchess of Hohenberg, in Sarajevo. With all the incest and daughter-swapping among European royalty going on at the time and in the preceding centuries, this caused a lot of royal personal grief and destabilised a lot of political alliances and agreements. Germany goaded Austria to give Serbia a caning for the transgression, which would serve Germany by dampening Serbian enthusiasm for Yugoslav nationalism. Russia moved troops in readiness to support Serbia, seeking to thwart perceived German ambitions in the Austrian-Serbian altercation. Alarmed by the Russian mobilisation, Germany mobilised its military, which prompted France to mobilise its military, and what might have begun and ended with a small altercation between two nations rapidly escalated through the network of alliances and past grievances into the start of the First World War. Russian forces, still in the process of modernisation, suffered heavy losses on every front at which they faced German-aligned forces. In massive debt to foreign banks, losing their sons in battle, experiencing rationing as the nation switched to its war footing, and holding a laundry list of historical grievances against their Tsar, the Russian Revolution began taking shape. In Petrograd, which became Leningrad, which became St. Petersburg, in February 1917, general strikes led to mass demonstrations which led to armed confrontations with police and the Imperial Guard, the Gendarme. Military allegiance to the Tsar fell away, and the city garrisons joined the demonstrations. Outgunned by orders of magnitude, Nicholas II abdicated on his own and on his son's behalf, ending the Romanov dynasty. Nicholas and his family went into palace arrest under the newly forming Petrograd Republic. Tsar Nicholas II, Tsarina Alexandra and their five children 
were executed by Soviet firing squad in July 1918, ensuring against a Romanov dynastic resurrection, conspiracy theory-minded Tsarist nutbags notwithstanding. The provisional government that stepped into the resulting power vacuum, legitimised by a proclamation by Grand Duke Michael, Tsar Nicholas II's brother, who refused to take power after his older sibling's abdication, because who would, but who got executed a few months down the line regardless, proved hugely unpopular due to its reluctance to remove Russia from the war. Bolshevists, far-left revolutionary Marxists influenced by Vladimir Lenin, influenced the workers' Petrograd Soviet, led by Leon Trotsky, which voted to back a military uprising against the provisional government. On the 25th of October, tens of thousands of soldiers and workers, the Bolshevik Red Guard, began occupying government buildings. These forces seized the Winter Palace, the seat of the provisional government, on the 26th of October, sealing the deal on what we now call the October Revolution, and kicking off negotiations to extract Russian troops from the war. Russia is big, and goings-on in Petrograd didn't automatically make all of that nation's cities and people recognise the new boss, so the October Revolution marks the start of five years of civil war between red and white factions, the white Russians comprising a grab bag of monarchists, democratic and anti-democratic capitalists, and a number of socialist factions left behind in the split that led to Lenin's Bolsheviks holding most of the left-wing cards. Thirteen other nations tried to intervene on the behalf of white Russia, but to no avail. In late 1922, enough of the nation fell under red influence that we mark that period as the start of the Soviet Union. This union began inviting in, annexing or invading surrounding nations, eventually incorporating the previously independent states of Armenia, Azerbaijan, Belarus, Estonia, Georgia, Kazakhstan, Kyrgyzstan, Latvia, Lithuania, Moldova, Tajikistan, Turkmenistan, Ukraine and Uzbekistan, incorporating their economies into that of the Soviet Union and imposing Russian language and culture in return. Lenin led the first two iterations of the Politburo, first a seven-member policy panel that fell apart quickly, and then a five-member version. Among those serving with him were Leon Trotsky, former leader of the Petrograd Soviet, and Joseph Stalin, an extremely ambitious political activist from an extremely poor family in Georgia. Both Trotsky and Stalin served the Bolshevik cause in the Civil War, Trotsky succeeding by guile and sound leadership, and Stalin by weight of numbers and the regular execution of anyone whose expertise or middle-class background posed a perceived threat to his growing power. Lenin died in 1924, and Stalin worked hard to extend and consolidate his power into the resulting gap at the top of the Politburo. Trotsky, while still holding some sway on paper, was increasingly marginalised and white-anted. In February 1929, Trotsky and his family were exiled to Turkey. All Trotsky's past achievements in the Revolution and the Civil War were wiped from Soviet Union history. Trotsky and his wife, Natalia Sadova, lived in Turkey, France and Norway, threatened by former white Russian military officers in each nation, hunted by Stalin's NKVD, 
the initialization of the Russian phrase for the People's Commissariat for Internal Affairs, which effectively became the secret police, and unwelcome as political pariahs wherever they went. In late 1936, Norway expelled them after keeping them under house arrest, placing them on an oil tanker bound for Mexico. Mexico welcomed them, President Lázaro Cárden laying on a special train to carry them from the port of Tampico to Mexico City. While living there, the Trotskys befriended the artist power couple Frida Kahlo and Diego Rivera, Trotsky having an affair with the former and writing socialist theory essays with the latter. On the 20th of August 1940, one of Stalin's NKVD operatives, a Spanish communist, inveigled his way into Trotsky's household as a political sympathiser. Under the guise of showing the Russian a document, the Spaniard hit the distracted Trotsky in the head with an ice axe, not killing him instantly because he used the ad's end, but starting the exsanguination that led to the Russian's death. A long digression for a series about Antarctica, but one of the most interesting historical arcs I know anything about, and too good not to include in a broad brush recounting of the rise of the Soviet Union. Under Stalin, the Soviet Union became a totalitarian dictatorship, with the state controlling many aspects of the lives of its citizens and Stalin controlling every aspect of the state. He purged the peasantry of a middle class called the Kulaks, whom he accused of withholding grain and causing the 1927 shortages. 320,000 families were uprooted and moved to undeveloped outlying parts of the Soviet Union or forced labour camps, or both. Large collectivist farms, deemed more efficient than family enterprises, were organised by local Soviets, but many peasants, resenting the loss of their family land to these projects, didn't work as hard as previously, and productivity slumped, leading to further food shortages. In 1928, the Politburo launched the first five-year plan, a roadmap to a waypoint in economic development in the region along a planned economic path. State advertising campaigns saw a surge in patriotic labour, and the 1930s saw productivity increase in mining and manufacturing, some industries meeting their five-year plan targets well ahead of the five-year mark. But agriculture still languished somewhere between the feudal crop rotation practices of previous centuries and mechanised modernity, consistently underperforming and leaving much of the Soviet Union hungry, and in some cases, starving. Communist Party confidence in the superiority of Marxist-Leninist practices in all fields led to several practical dead ends, none of them more impactful than the genetic gobbledygook of Lysenkoism. Soviet agronomist Trofim Lysenko experimented with wheat, wetting and chilling his seed stock to see if he could alter the resulting plant's tolerance for cold. Lysenko ignored data and decided his season-shifting process, which he called vernalization, worked a treat, and began spreading the word. His political connections and his origins as a child of a poor family who worked hard to become a successful and dedicated party member saw his ideas, which mixed elements of the already falsified concepts of Lamarckian evolution with existing understandings of seed treatment, adopted as a tenet of communist ideology. Beyond increased yields, Lysenko claimed his seed treatments nulled the need for fertilisers, making previously barren land arable. 
anyone who contested Lysenko using conflicting data, or just asking for more compelling demonstrations of vernalization than he provided in his papers, found themselves kicked out of whatever research position they held, and left poor, imprisoned, or executed. This last fate befalling Lysenko's former mentor, the botanist Nikolai Vavilov. Faith in Lysenko's ideas saw Russian agriculture set back not only in comparison with Western nations applying new and exciting understandings of Mendelian genetics to their food production, but against the Russia of the 19th century. Millions starved because of a powerful but deluded agronomist amassing acclaim and wealth, while his ideas failed every time anyone applied them in an attempt to increase yields and extend farming into land previously deemed and practically demonstrated as barren. China adopted Lysenko's practices in the late 1950s, and further tens of millions starved in the resulting famine caused almost exclusively by belief in the absence of evidence, or faith, in the Lysenkoan paradigm. One aspect of the first five-year plan called for industrialization of Russia's far north. Previously, the far north's surplus value trickled south in the form of furs from furriers working enslaved Evenki and Unanganen, the latter previously incorrectly referred to in this series as Aleut populations. With developments in icebreaker design, aviation competency and radio reach offering the first threads towards establishing and sustaining larger populations further away from existing population centres and arable land, the Soviet Union pressed its industrial development programs north. The Soviet attitude toward the environment focused on first taming and then turning all ecological and natural resources to the benefit of humanity, or at least to the benefit of Soviet citizens, or at least to the benefit of Comrade Stalin. Not terribly different to attitudes within the East India Company, (coughs) sorry, in the British Empire, or the Manifest Destiny playing out in the USA, but written more explicitly into government policy than passively allowed to play out under Adam Smith's invisible Dutch rudder. Under the Tsars, economic growth equated to imperial conquest, but with the borders of the Soviet Union butting up against those of other empires, the Politburo began looking north as early as 1920, establishing the Northern Research and Trade Expedition. In 1925, this became the Institute of Northern Studies, and in 1930, the All-Union Arctic Institute, but I don't know what internal changes attended these renamings. With 25% of the landmass under Soviet control lying above the Arctic Circle, as yet untouched mineral deposits, nickel, copper and coal, with lesser deposits of gold, silver, platinum, lead, zinc, tungsten, iron, manganese and oil, forests, herds of reindeer and fisheries awaited exploitation. The existing fur trade could potentially expand too. The government mobilised tens of thousands of colonists to head north and get on with the exploiting. The northward expansion made use of volunteer pioneers, offered promotions or opportunities otherwise not available to them, but forced labour played a larger part. The estimated number of civil and political prisoners held in the Soviet system of forced labour camps, the Gulag, an acronym for words translating to Main Camp Administration, Glavnoi Upravlinie Lagere, rose from 100,000 in the 1920s to 1.5 million in the late 1930s. 
At least 150,000 Gulag inmates worked to dig by hand, a canal connecting the White Sea with the Baltic. One in six forced labourers died on the project, which spanned 230 kilometres and required 19 locks to bring vessels as much as 100 metres above sea level in order to overcome the geographic obstacles. In spite of its substantial use as a symbol of success in the first five-year plan, coming to completion ahead of schedule and under budget, the canal depth of 3.5 metres didn't afford its use by modern shipping. The Gulag system wasn't a major PR ticket item for the Soviet Union, but the government cited the canal as a laudable application of prison labour bringing about rehabilitation, largely by keeping the catastrophic death toll quiet. Japanese imperialism in Manchuria gave Soviet planners pause, and industrial development in the northeast proceeded with an eye for military utility and practical redundancy. A new bridge across a river would soon receive a twin nearby, in case Japanese ambitions saw bombers sent north to destroy the Soviet arteries along the new frontier. The development of natural resources in the north fell to the newly instituted government company, the Glavnoi Opravlenya Severnovo Morskovo, locally shortened to Glavsevmorput, which translates to the central administration of the North Sea route. Led by Belarusian geophysicist and mathematician Otto Schmidt, the company originally set out to establish permanent shipping routes between settlements along the northern coast, but eventually expanded its remit to encompass all northern development projects from managing forestry coops through to establishing air routes. Otto Schmidt's Arctic experience arose in expeditions aboard the steam-powered icebreaker Georgi Sedov, during which he established a research station in Franz Josef Land. The company used flying boats, often Dornier Wiles, to reconnoitre resources and to scout routes. Seaplanes and ski planes served more local roles. For example, an icebreaker facing extensive flows could call upon a shore station to send a scout plane to identify the optimum route, precluding the need for ships plying the Northeast Passage to carry launch and retrieve their own airframes. The aviation contingent recognised, as did Juno Watkins, the potential shortcuts offered by great circle routes over the Arctic and mapped out a string of airfields and radio stations by which to service potential future refuelling and navigation demands as those imagined air routes developed. Umberto Nabile exiled from Italy for the crash of the Italia and the subsequent fascist loss of face in the Red Tent Saga, served the company as an airship designer and air route planner. At its peak, the company employed 35,000 workers in the 57 Arctic villages it established, and another 5,000 in administration and universities in Moscow and Leningrad. Further icebreaker-mediated exploration saw the company make the first transit of the Northeast Passage that didn't incorporate a winter spent above the Arctic Circle. In May 1937, the company established the first Soviet drift ice station, North Pole 1, led by company aviation coordinator and pilot, Mark Shevelev. Aircraft deposited four scientists 20 kilometres from the geographic North Pole. The quartet spent almost a year adrift, icebreakers collecting them near the northern coast of Greenland the following February. Later that same year, two Soviet icebreakers, the Sadko 
and the Maligan became trapped in the ice of the Laptev Sea. The Georgi Sedov went to their aid but itself became trapped, and the expedition leader, Professor Rudolf Samilovich, began preparing the 217 crew for a long winter. By April 1928, drifted three degrees further north, a relief party arrived by air and began shuttling the crew south again. Professor Samilovich was arrested for incompetence, but later, after further efforts to retrieve the stranded vessels with two more icebreakers, one named after glorious leader Joseph Stalin, the other being the Yermak, see episode 142, only resulted in the Sadko and the Maligan free, but the three other ships entrained. The Yermak and the Joseph Stalin freed themselves before the winter set in, but the Sedov remained icebound, a skeleton crew comprising 15 hard cases aboard to try to fend off the worst of the winter pummeling likely in the Sedov's offing. The government began to release statements about the brave pioneering work, seeking to drift further north than Nansen's 1893-96 drift aboard the Fram, while Otto Schmidt was kicked uphill to a role in the Academy of Sciences, replaced by Ivan Papinin, previously the leader of North Pole 1 during its polar drift. In 1931, following the Innsbruck Conference for the Second International Polar Year, members of the Arctic Institute, including Rudolf Samelovich, began preparing a plan for an Antarctic expedition in East Antarctica, focusing on oceanography and glaciology and seeking coal deposits by which to fuel Southern Ocean fleets. That this expedition never eventuated, Nail shut the option to claim Peter the First Land and the associated mainland cited by Bellingshausen in accord with the Hughes Doctrine pervasive at the time. The push to open up air routes and seaplane stations and rail networks and forestry coops and mining Soviets in the north during the second five-year plan is captured in a rose-tinted Soviet propaganda travelogue style in the book 40,000 Against the Arctic by Hans-Peter Smoltke, an Austrian-born British citizen and journalist for the Times and the Daily Express and secret NKVD agent, eventually revealed as the sixth man. Originally published in the Times as a series of dispatches from his travels, the book reads like the NKVD propaganda that it was. Afforded the hard-to-get visas necessary to travel north, Smolka glossed over the role of forced labour and basked in the prospect of wild Lysenko-driven fantasies of verdant crops arising from the permafrost in the near future. Smolka wrote of the northern pioneers as follows. These people have endurance, broad-mindedness, a sense for opportunity and the will to use it. End quote. The text does mention political dissidents sent north as part of their gulag sentence, but largely brushes over their numbers and the forced labour aspect of their sentences, noting them more as an exception among the exceptional pioneers that peopled the bulk of his anecdotes. Smolka wrote of the industrialisation as a battle against the north, and company employees as the Northern Army, mirroring the sort of tosh Richard Evelyn Bird tended to trot out. Where the American sought to big note himself, I think Smolka's use of the tropes sincerely represents Soviet perception of the project. I did laugh out loud when, in a chapter discussing the Northern pilots' wives, Smolka alleges a long quote from one of the most vocal examples, which features the sentence, quote, Of course, there is no prostitution in Russia. End quote. 
I know techniques in propaganda came a long way in the past 80 years, and no nation other than North Korea still engages in this level of invisible mobile phones allowed dear leader to offer advice to our soccer heroes during the World Cup nonsense. But it still rises up and hits you in the face when someone from the past tries to lay it on with so little subtlety. I mentioned in episode 106 that the Soviet Union put women to work in roles women didn't fill in other nations for several decades, and that holds in my reading of the history of the development of the North. But Smolka recounts a situation in which a female aircraft engineer is denied promotion and opportunity in the industrialization process because of her gender. That sucks, but keep in mind she was an aircraft engineer in 1937. Mother Russia denied her the plum rolls that profession offered male counterparts, but it allowed her to take up the profession at a time when the British Empire still treated any woman who sought to work in any mechanical profession as mentally ill. As with pioneering efforts elsewhere, some of the towns the Northern Industrial Push established didn't last. Some others, usually those based on existing settlements, originally established because of geographic advantages recognised by the Evenki and Unanganan, still support populations in the thousands. While many of the projects kicked off in the period faltered due to the difficulties associated with building and sustaining isolated settlements on permafrost, and more ran to ghost town status as the resources they processed ran out, the Northern Industrial Push gave the Soviet Union a substantial workforce accustomed to high latitudes privations, and this served the nation well after the Second World War when... Ha, yes, but I'm getting ahead of myself there. <clears throat> Norway's formal Antarctic claims in January 1939, prompted by Nazi activity in the Southern Ocean, prompted a reply from Soviet government lawyers. The Soviet Union reserved its position on Norwegian sovereignty in the Antarctic based on Bellingshausen's discoveries, effectively taking the same road regarding Antarctic territorial claims as the USA. Stalin continued to execute anyone he perceived as a threat and promoted anyone who sucked up in a pleasing manner until he perceived them as a threat, at which point he executed them. Among those executed was Rudolf Semelovich. His crime, dedicating more time to geology than to keeping northern sea routes navigable for as long as possible. You can't win when playing poker with a sufficiently powerful sociopath, no matter what hand you're dealt, or how well you play your cards. With the Soviet Union caught somewhere between the Middle Ages and modernity, Stalin knew the Russian military weren't well placed to stave off external threats posed by Japan operating in Manchuria and Nazi Germany, rearming for its imminent rampage through Europe. In August 1939, Stalin's 2IC and number one suck-up, Lev Molotov, signed, in company with Nazi Minister of Foreign Affairs, Joachim von Ribbentrop, the Treaty of Non-Aggression between Germany and the Union of Soviet Socialist Republics. The document featured a divvying up of Eastern Europe between the Soviets and the Nazis. As soon as the treaty came into effect, both the Soviets and the Nazis invaded Poland kicking off the Nazi blitzkrieg that continued through Denmark, Norway, Belgium, the Netherlands, Luxembourg, France, Yugoslavia and Greece, and starting the winter war between the Soviet Union and Finland. Molotov characterised incendiary bombing raids over Finnish towns as humanitarian aid, food parcels dropped to Russia's starving neighbours. 
In response to this propaganda, the Finns referred to the incendiary bombs as Molotov's breadbaskets. When Finnish forces began improvising hand-thrown incendiary devices to lob at Russian tanks, they dubbed them Molotov cocktails, being an appropriate drink to accompany the bread he sent them earlier. Another sizable digression for the ice coffee narrative, but hell's bells Russian history is all steak. Hitler never intended keeping to his non-aggression pact with the Soviets, and once he secured the bulk of Europe to his satisfaction, he sent his troops east to establish Nazi Lebensraum in areas previously occupied by Slavic people, which he considered less than human, and communists, which he considered anti-human. Starting in June 1941, Operation Barbarossa rang the bell of doom for the Nazis, though that doom took four years to play out. With German and other Axis nations fighting Russia to the east, and Britain to the west, and then British, Free French, Australian and New Zealand and US troops in North Africa, with the kickoff of Operation Torch in November 1942, the clock was ticking for National Socialism. Hitler's hatred of communists and Slavic races wound up the clockwork of his single biggest mistake in a military career littered with mistakes. Immediately on the Germans attacking to the east, the Soviet Union signed an ally agreement with Great Britain, because Stalin was nothing if not expedient. The Soviet Union were on the back foot for a long time though. Axis nations committed eastward troops and machinery in a larger invasion force than any other in history, fighting along almost 3,000 kilometres of front line. German armoured divisions, artillery batteries, infantry and air force squadrons honed to razor sharp efficiency by first the Spanish Civil War and then the Blitzkrieg across Europe, cut through Soviet defensive positions like a hot knife through butter. Every statistic about the invasion overmatched historical precedent, often by orders of magnitude. The largest battles, the most casualties, the worst war crimes. Nazi troops took food from everyone they encountered in the push eastward making the passive genocide of tens of millions of local Gentiles every bit as effective by starvation as the active genocide of a million Soviet Jews in the Nazi death camps, while helping solve their own problem of supply lines extending several hundred kilometres into former Soviet-held territory. With the Red Army leadership structure left gutted by Stalin's purges of anyone with the talent and charisma to challenge his authority in any way, and command and control at the front line destroyed by the weight and speed of the invasion. It took a long time for Stalin to realise how badly his troops were being trounced, and even longer to formulate anything approaching an effective strategy by which to turn the situation around. While his troops in the West held back the invasion as best they could, much of the rest of the Soviet Union evacuated eastward. Not just the people, but the factories necessary to sustain the Red Army's attempt to push back the invaders, with machinery and materials filling every manner of available rolling stock on every train line heading away from the front. Scorched earth tactics ensured nothing useful remained for the Nazis as they continued pushing the Red Army back, forcing Hitler to divert ever more resources eastward to sustain the initiative. United States and British manufacturing went to the Soviet Union via sea routes from Britain and via air routes over Alaska from North America. Aircraft, transports, munitions and armoured vehicles, and instructors to train Soviet personnel in their use, kept the Red Army in hardware 
while the evacuated factories got re-established in the east, got re-established in the east, and began knocking out local designs once more. It took some time, but with the Soviet Union mobilising standing and reserve troops from across its eastern half, the military leadership missing after Stalin's purges was gradually replaced. Soviet factories produced ever more refined machinery with which to arm the troops heading west to join the fight. Fighter planes from Mikoyan, Levochkin and Yakovlev gave pilots at least a fighting chance against experienced Luftwaffe pilots in Messerschmitts and Fokowolfs. Aleutian ground attack aircraft arrived in theatre to provide tactical support to ground troops. The T-34 tank, simple to make and operate, and armed and armoured fit to give the best German machinery a run for its money, began rolling out of multiple factories. One feature of Soviet technology gave it an edge in this context. It's clunky simplicity. A licensed aircraft maintenance engineer once told me that in the 1940s, the British would solve a given problem with 24 elegantly designed and fabricated parts that moved in beautiful harmony when working correctly and proved an absolute bastard to fix when it broke down. Americans solved the same problem with five stamped metal parts that were easy to manufacture and that lasted exactly one month less than required before breaking beyond repair. Russians solved the same problem with two moving parts, both of them being anvils. That was exaggeration for humorous effect, but there's something true at the heart of it. Russian military technology at the time lagged behind German engineering in terms of sophistication and finesse, but it worked reliably in the cold, and that means a lot in a Russian winter. It doesn't matter how precisely the Porsche workshops machined the parts of a tank gunner's sighting periscope, or how elegant the fuel injectors in a Daimler-Benz engine up front of a Messerschmitt fighter might be, if the tiny moving parts freeze together. The bitter Russian winter calls for anvil-based engineering. Axis forces made it as far as the three big cities in the Soviet West, Leningrad in the north, Moscow in the middle, and Stalingrad in the south. The battle to capture Stalingrad, gateway, bracket, not really, but it was called Stalingrad, and to Hitler that was something of a red rag, bracket, to the oil fields of the Caucasus, and control node for all transport on the Volga River, raised the city. House-to-house fighting lasted several months, allowing General Winter to join the Russians in making life hell for the invaders. Pushed back to a thin smear along the riverbank, the Red Army attacked Romanian forces on the flanks of the German 6th Army. The Romanians melted in the face of the human wave attacks the Russians employed, and the Red Army encircled the Germans. Hitler demanded his troops continue to fight for the city, and sent squadrons of transport aircraft in an attempt to supply the besieged troops. Russian fighter pilots, re-equipped with new designs from the evacuated manufacturing industries in the east and newly adept at killing Nazis, prevented all but a handful of the German transports getting through to the Nazi troops. The 6th Army, starving and out of ammunition, surrendered, the first of Hitler's military units to do so en masse and marking the middle of the beginning of the end for National Socialism. The siege of Leningrad lasted almost 900 days, during which German and Finnish troops completely encircled the city and instituted another passive genocide gambit, with most of the civilian population starving. 
compared to Leningrad and Stalingrad, the three-month battle for control of Moscow seems a doddle. But compared to any other battles in any other historical context, the statistics still baffle and bewilder. The Soviet defenders held the German offensives at bay long enough for winter to set in and give them the home climate advantage. Winter counter-offensives, characterised by brutally disciplined Soviet forces, with all soldiers found moving away from the front line without a written order to do so, shot on the spot by NKVD enforcers, broke the German lines and forced a retreat. Napoleon could have told Hitler what people my age learnt from Vicini. Never get involved in a land war in Asia. The existential threat National Socialism posed to all people in the Soviet Union and the concerted effort that all citizens put into the fight to expel the invaders formed the new backbone of Soviet nationalism and the Great Patriotic War is justly celebrated in literature, music, museums and day-to-day discussion in present-day Russia. Other nations were occupied, parasitised and attacked by Nazis but no one paid so many lives in combating their threat. Britain likely couldn't have held out against invasion had Hitler not turned his attention eastward and without Airstrip 1 available to their forces, the United States couldn't have entered the European theatre at the scale it eventually did. The battles for North Africa and Italy amount to molehills in terms of drawing the attention from the Axis nations when compared to the Soviet efforts to kill Nazis. Allied leaders engaged in those gambits largely as a sap to Stalin who demanded other nations do their part, while Britain and the USA marshalled their resources on Airstrip 1 in preparation for the D-Day landings and the subsequent push toward Berlin, their main contribution to ending Nazi occupations outside of Germany. Following victory in Europe Day, former allies turned to sustained enemies as two diametrically opposed ideologies divvied up post-war Europe. Communist leaders mistrusted capitalist leaders and vice versa, and nations beneath those leaders learnt to hate their counterparts in religious fashions as the demarcation between Eastern and Western Europe became an ideological more than a geographical boundary. The Cold War, an impasse between communist and capitalist nations, characterised the second half of the 20th century. Proxy wars broke out, testing the will of communist and capitalist superpowers by their engagement with or supply of arms to ideologically aligned combatants, But Warsaw Pact and NATO alliance forces never went to war directly against each other, as the nuclear stalemate of mutually assured destruction came to dominate detente between East and West. Arctic Research Institute director Viktor Bionitki began planning an Antarctic expedition in the immediate wake of the war, but nothing came of his ambitions in the short term. Renewing interest in Antarctica saw Bellingshausen's legacy unearthed and celebrated to an extent the salty Russian sea dog never enjoyed in his lifetime. Soviet naval historian Evgeny Evgenievich Schurder published a new edition of Bellingshausen's report through the Geographical Society of the United Soviet Socialist Republics in 1949, featuring a new foreword highlighting the historical and political significance of Bellingshausen's movements and discoveries. In the immediate wake of the war, the Soviet Union looked south for whale oil. Their first whaling flotilla comprised a German factory vessel and its chasers, initially taken from Kiel to the United Kingdom. 
the ships were wrangled out of British hands as relations between the United Kingdom and the Soviet Union deteriorated by Alexander Afanasyev. Though stripped of their whaling equipment and left derelict for several months, they required nearly complete refits before heading south in 1946. Lacking experience in Southern Ocean whaling, the Soviet government hired 30 experienced Norwegians to stand at the pointy bits of the vessels comprising what was now known as the Slava Flotilla. Slava meaning glory. Soviet shipyards cranked out another four fleets of factory ships and associated chaser vessels in the two years the Slava's Soviet crew spent learning the trade from the Norwegians. These were the Sovetskaya Ukraina Flotilla, Yuri Dolgorukiai Flotilla, and the Sovetskaya Rossiya Flotilla. The Soviet whaling fleets operated in all oceans other than the North Atlantic, where competing interests already denuded whale stocks below the break-even point for even the most efficient operations. At least one flotilla each austral summer carried a team of glaciologists, oceanographers and geographers, gathering data during their time in the Southern Ocean and publishing their findings to enhance the Soviet association with Antarctica at the expense of the efficiency of the whaling operation. Stalin died in March 1953, leaving no succession plan and no leadership framework other than a larger Politburo that he instituted in 1952, the Presidium. Georgi Malenkov, supervisor of wartime aircraft production and overseer of Soviet nuclear weapons development in the wake of the Great Patriotic War, took the vacant seat but relinquished the role to Nikita Khrushchev, one of Stalin's military liaisons during the war and a defender of Stalingrad during the Nazi attempt to capture the city. Khrushchev denounced Stalin's leadership and crimes against his own citizens and oversaw a gradual easing of government intrusions into the lives of the Soviet population. His reliance on missiles as the be-all defence of the motherland led to diminished spending on other military branches. That policy served well in the shooting down of Gary Powers' U-2 in 1960, but also saw the Cuban Missile Crisis arise on his watch. But we're getting well ahead of ourselves. Khrushchev was responsible for the Soviet space program getting off the ground. Well, a load of former Nazi rocket scientists did help on that one, as was also the case in the USA, and initiated Soviet research voyages to Antarctica, which is where this digressional dive was trying to head the entire time. Soviet mariners, scientists and politicals, already practiced in their high-latitudes annexations in the Arctic, began preparing to plant the Soviet flag in Antarctica. In 1955, the All-Union Arctic Institute began planning the Soviet contribution to the International Geophysical Year, which included Antarctic research stations, prompting another institutional name change, the Arctic and Antarctic Research Institute. Soviet interest in the South arose far later than that of Britain, but in branding terms, this knocked the Falkland Islands Dependency Survey into a cocked hat. What originally sought to connect Britain to the region by historical precedent in its South Atlantic colony now looked a bit crap because it didn't feature the word Antarctic in its name. Apropos of nothing beyond highlighting the historical parallels, the second five-year plan coincided with a party population drive that made abortion illegal in the Soviet Union. 
Lenin made abortion legal in 1920, pipping all the European nations to that family planning option and bodily autonomy milestone. So Stalin reversing that enfranchisement caught a lot of Soviet citizens by surprise. Interesting parallels between government interference in the lives of citizens during the increasingly repressive Stalin era and the present SCOTUS. History repeats in some strange and depressing ways. In other news, the Antarctic tourism industry appears largely recovered from the pandemic, with 50,000 visitors taken south by ship in the 2022-23 Austral summer. Four people, all US citizens, died in accidents during the season, two when a zodiac overturned at Elephant Island, one in a fall, and one when a particularly large wave struck their vessel, causing some damage to the superstructure and injuring several people, one of whom died. Maritime operations are inherently dangerous, and the demographics of Antarctic tour voyages skew elderly, factoring up the risks. A season without a fatality is great, but it shouldn't surprise anyone that placing large numbers of elderly skewed non-mariners in the Southern Ocean and decanting them into zodiacs in freezing waters occasionally results in fatalities. The US Coast Guard is sticking its oar into investigations underway by the flag states of the vessels in question, those being Portugal, the Netherlands and Norway respectively. I don't see that as inherently bad, seeing as the US Coast Guard, to an outsider, appears a bunch of competent maritime operators, but it's got to stick in the craw of the flag states, each of them boasting maritime heritages extending back beyond Columbus voyages westward. It sticks in my craw that the US government is getting excited about the safety of its retirees when they so readily papered over the death of a young Australian physicist at one of its own stations. Boomers looking out for boomers, perhaps, or just another flex in Antarctic geopolitics. I'm feeling cynical, regardless of the motives behind these developments. I should note here that the 2006 deaths of two United States Coast Guard members working aboard the United States Coast Guard cutter Healy in an ice diving incident near Barrow gave me concerns about their dive protocols and compliance. Perhaps they've picked up their act since then, and perhaps the diving accident doesn't reflect on the overall maritime mode of the service. Either way, the investigators sent to Ushuaia should hold their own organisation's current mode in mind when critiquing that of the operators involved in the recent fatalities. Take care and appreciate your coffee and hurry up and destroy Carthage because Hadley Mearsham's still operating in Antarctic tourism. (laughs) 